fun for tonight. A few weeks back, we saw shortly after God created Adam and Eve that he told them to replenish the earth. And Genesis 1.28, does this have to do with dinosaurs? You guys are in Genesis 1. Let's look at verse 28. Refresh all of our memories. And God blessed them and God said unto them, who's the them here? Adam and Eve, Eve, absolutely. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Uh, Out of curiosity, and if you're embarrassed, you don't have to. I'm just curious because I didn't recognize the handwriting. Who put this question in the box? Oh, Kendall. Okay. It's a great question because we just did this in creation studies. Interesting. So, do you guys want to hear Andy teach this? Yeah. I'm actually pretty good with paleontology. I don't care. Anyways, all right. So uh, this question has been a long time coming. Um, You guys had, a lot of you guys, when I kept teasing this a few weeks back, uh, some of you came up to me and said, hey, uh, is this question in regards to what I think it is? And I was like, yep, it is. And uh, it goes back to even when we covered, if you guys remember from How to Study the Bible, the class we did on Sunday mornings during the fall, we had talked about the deep and how you compare Scripture with Scripture and find out what the deep is and how it's there's this crystal sea up beyond space going right into the third heaven and I had teased that something had happened there and and even now going back to goodness I was just checking out in the notes here I think it was the last message we did in Revelation which we did a week before camp that I had actually teased this whole moment way back then, and then I said, sorry, we don't have time to cover it. So, for those of you who have been waiting ever since then, this is not only going to answer that question about what does it have to do with dinosaurs, but this is going to answer a whole lot of other stuff, and even tie in with what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. And I just now noticed I forgot to put something on the study sheet, but that's okay, we can cover it this way. Uh, So, for the sake of context of verse 28, we have to go back to the very first part of this chapter in verse 1. Can I get a reader for verses 1 and 2? Kendall, since it's your question, seems fitting. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. So for those of you who know where I'm probably going with this, uh, don't answer this question, but does anybody see anything interesting here? Yes. Andy? Jaden? It was all water. Earth with water. Okay. That is interesting because that does go into what we're going to touch on next. Anybody else? Does anything strike out to you, stand out to you? You know where we're going with this. You know what's interesting? For some reason, I don't know if it's an American thing or if it's just Western culture as a whole, but we don't often catch what we just read here. However, if you were to go and disciple or open up the Bible and teach somebody in Asia, because he, in Western culture, we're very linear based. We do things in a very list and task oriented manner. Okay, once I'm done with this one, I'm going to move on to this next task and then this task. And we tend to check things off or check things off or cross them off the list. After we accomplish them, we're just very, very linear in the way that our mindset is structured as Westerners. But do you know in the Asiatic culture how they do things? They work at things in a circular fashion. And they'll do something, and they work it circular all the way around. It is why they're smart. Very, very circular. Now, 
you guys, this will, might take a little bit longer to explain, and I'm not really going to go deep into it right now, but you guys realize that the Bible is written from an Asiatic viewpoint, from an Eastern standpoint, because this is how God thinks. And those of you guys who are involved in discipleship, you might even have seen this in your discipleship booklet, where instead of like, okay, you know what, I'm going to you know, start my day off with morning time with God, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to eat breakfast, then I'm going to go to school, and I'm going to do my homework. Instead of doing things that way, the way that God really wants us to do things is the fact that he's in the center and everything else that we do revolves around him. This might just be the way that I disciple, but it, it's been a while since I've been through lesson one. Is this in lesson one at all or in your guys' discipleship material or is this something that I just add in? I must have. Okay. But do you guys get it though? Because if we're like, you know what, I'm going to put God first at the start of my day. Well, let's say you spend time with God in the morning. Well, does that mean that God's no longer part of the rest of your day? But that's how we as Westerners think. And sometimes as Christians, and I know for me, especially when I was in high school, this is the way that I categorize things, especially my walk with God. Instead, we should look at things like, you know, if this is family over here and this is school and for some of you who have jobs and this is work and this is, you know, free time. Instead of, you know, having it in a list kind of a fashion, God needs to be in the center, the central focus of everything we do, and everything we're involved in should revolve around God. That's how the Eastern Asiatic mindset is. What am I getting at with this? You realize that if you were to sit down with somebody in the Philippines or in Vietnam and show them this passage, you know what they're going to say? Wait a second. Something is off here. We only read the first two verses of the entire Bible. What could possibly be off? And you know what they start saying? God created heaven and the earth. Where'd the darkness come from? Why is it without form? Why is it void? And where did these waters come from? Did you guys catch that? It seems as though when you read it, that there is a gap of time that takes place in between verse 1 and verse 2. Because it doesn't make logical sense to read verse 1 and say, oh, the next logical thing that would happen would be verse 2. And that's what this is all about tonight. Yes. There is a gapage of time or a gap of time in between verses 1 and 2. In many circles of Christianity, this is known as the gap theory. Or as we like to call it here in this church, the gap. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. And for those of you who might be like wigging out right now thinking, holy crap, is this something heretical or anti-biblical? Well, just hang with us. We will go through the rest of the study sheets and we'll, we'll see it. But you guys understand that, and this is where I forgot to throw this into the PowerPoint. You guys understand that there are gaps in time all throughout the Bible. I mean, for those of you who went through the Revelation study with us, we talked about Daniel's 70th week. 
and how that 70th week, not to get too complicated because that's a message in and of itself, it's not 70 actual weeks like we think of it because the Jewish word, they didn't have a word for multiple weeks or multiple years in that. So it was 70 series of seven years. So like 490 years. And in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, you hear about this up until the 69th week or this week of years. After that 69th week, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he's going to be cut off. He's going to be killed. And then Daniel's 70th week is this seven-year period where you have this man of sin arise on the scene. And he goes into the temple of God and declares himself to be God. And he commits what's known as the abomination of desolation. And the 70th week is all talking about the tribulation period. So wait a second. The tribulation period was supposed to happen right after Christ died? Yeah. And it would have had something happened in the book of Acts. That's an interesting question to drop in the box, by the way. Everything that needed to take place for the tribulation to happen was already there. Israel had to have the temple. They had to be in their homeland. And Rome had to be in power. You look at all the Bible prophecy, it boils down. Everything there was set up for the tribulation period to happen right there in Acts chapter 7. As Stephen is preaching to Israel, wanting them to just repent and see that they killed their Messiah. And had they repented and believed and put their faith and trust in Christ. You guys remember what Stephen looks up in the sky and what he sees right before his death, his martyrdom? What is it? I heard whispers. He saw the heavens open and who did he see there? He saw Jesus, but not how we normally see Jesus. See, after the Bible says after Christ died, resurrected, and then ascended up on high, he sat down on the right hand of God the Father. But he's not in that posture in Acts chapter 7. He's standing up, ready to gather his saints in the rapture, had they received him at that moment. Okay, I guess we don't need to put the question in the box, but that pretty much answered it. <laughs> Point being, if you go back to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, talking about the 69th week where Jesus dies and the 70th week where it's the tribulation period, there's a 2,000-year gap of time in between the 69th and the 70th week, and that's what the church age is. That's where we're at right now. If that one doesn't make sense to you, that's okay. This next one will. Hold your place here. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Sorry, I have most of the stuff I'm going to say tonight on the PowerPoint. I didn't want you guys flipping too many places, but again, this is one I just now realized I didn't have here. Another gap of time that you see in Scripture. Isaiah chapter 9. This one should be familiar to you guys. We covered this in How to Study the Bible. Read it for verse 6. Andy scratched his head, and then I made eye contact with him, so then he was like, Mah. So, yeah, go ahead, Andy. Go ahead. You got caught. For unto us a child is born, unto us is given. What? <laughs> unto us a... I'm reading it. I'm not done. You skipped son. No, I was turning my page to go to it. Oh, well, you skipped 
you still skipped a word. <laughs> For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You just said unto us a is given. <laughs> Another reader, please. <laughs> just kidding. All right. For unto us a child is born. Unto that us wasn't the one he skipped. Son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Quick question. When is this talking about? Those of you who remember from how to study the Bible. This verse, when is it talking about these things? You guys have all seen that verse before. Where do you see that verse all the time? Christmas cards. Oh, there you are. Okay. You guys have to whisper. You can speak up. Christmas cards, you see it. Because what do we celebrate at Christmas time? Jesus. The birth of... He was a man! He had a beard! <laughs> this is good. I am dead tired, so this is waking me up. Uh, so the, you look at that verse, you think it's the birth of Christ, because that's a verse we always use. A child is given. But when Christ came the first time, was the government upon his shoulder? No. No. Was he called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father? Was he called the Prince of Peace? Now, he is to us because of what he's done for us on the cross. But is he known as the Prince of Peace? Does the world look peaceful to you right now? No. no. There is a gap of time just found within this verse itself. The first half of the verse is talking about his first coming. The second half of the verse is talking about his second coming. There are gaps of time all throughout Scripture. So for there to be one in between verse 1 and verse 2, it's not really that far-fetched of an idea. But again, with this one especially, you can flip back to Genesis 1. I want to do something unique, and this is why your study sheet is broken up a little bit differently than how it normally is. And you'll see it as we actually start going through it. I want us to pay attention to every single word that God chooses to use within these two verses. And we're going to break it down and look, and we'll see why this is so interesting and why this stands out to us as a gap of time. All right, so point number one on your outline, we see in the beginning, very simply put, at the start of everything, God created time, beginning, space, heaven, and matter. Time, space, and heaven, it all started with him, it all started with him as the creator, and that leads us right into point two, God created. Note how it says the word created and not made. And believe it or not, there actually is a difference between those two words. I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but I hope it changes the way that you look at verse 1 from now on. Created, letter A, means to produce something completely new that did not exist before. However, made means to produce something out of the matter that already exists. Now, that's very, very important for what we're going to see here in a little bit. Actually, right now, look at letter C. You can check these passages out later, but in Exodus 20, 11, and 31, 17, in Psalm 90, verse 2, it says that God made and formed the heavens and the earth, but in Genesis 2, actually flip on over there, look at verse 3. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in in it, he rested from all his work, which God created and made. 
These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth, which or when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And as a little side note, jump back to chapter one. You ever pay attention to the verbiage and the word choices that God uses here to explain the days of creation? Look at verse six. And God said, let there be. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters. In verse 11, God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind. How could that happen? How could it be there if it wasn't created? Why didn't he use the word create there? No, he says, let it bring forth. If I were to come to one of you and say, hey, come forth, it means that you're already positioned in point A and you're going to be coming to point B. He says, let the earth bring forth grass as if to say it was already there at one point. And it was, it's not until you get down, look down to verse 21. And God created great whales. And every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God, God saw that it was good. So you see here, everything else that he says as far as the days of creation, he's just saying, hey, let it bring forth. And we also see from cross-referencing that he made certain things from matter that already existed. And in some cases, he also created new things while he was making everything. So back on the outline. You check that out and you can check out the other passages that are on there. But it says that he created and made in his work. He created certain things as he was making everything, as we just saw. Whales, mankind, aspects of heaven. Because again, the point of this entire series of Q&A is to see what does the Bible have to say about this, about that. Your questions. So if we're going to look at what the Bible has to say, especially on a topic like this, that if you latch on to what we're going to talk about tonight and you believe this, you will be looked at as a kook from a lot of your friends and churches because there's a lot of other King James Baptists who look at us as though we're kooky because of this. This is not very uh, well propagated amongst uh, churches today. But you know what? It doesn't matter what we believe. It doesn't matter what they believe. What does the Bible say? And you need to pay attention to every word. There's a reason why in verse 1 of chapter 1, he says created, not made. Point 3. What did he create? The heaven and the earth. As you will note here, and Isabella, we're going to get to your question by the end of tonight, but just as a little precursor to that, heaven is singular here in verse 1. But when you get to chapter 2, verse 1, it's plural. Now here's the thing with this. Before Genesis 1-6, there was a singular heaven. But when God placed a firmament in the midst of the waters, you can read that in, in verse 6, where he says he has this firmament in the midst of the waters. He divided the waters so that there were waters above the firmament and waters underneath the firmament. When he did that, he created what we now know are the three heavens. And this shouldn't surprise anybody. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. This is Paul writing. He says, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body. 
So Paul's having what appears to be this out-of-body experience going on right now. I personally think it's when he uh, got stoned to death, uh, when guys actually grabbed rocks and crushed his head. I think he went to heaven, and then God resurrected him back. Story for another day. He goes, I can't tell what it was. He goes, but such an one I was caught up to the third heaven. And again, we discussed this in how to study the Bible when we looked at the deep. But here's a little visual that might help you guys. Again, Genesis 1, 7, 8 is talking about this firmament that God created. There were waters on the earth. And this firmament or this expanse of space was created. And it separated so that there were waters underneath it and waters above it, also known as the deep, also known as the sea of glass in the book of Revelation. So you guys see here with this firmament, there's three kinds of heaven that are created. The first one, it's our atmosphere. And you could read in the book of Psalms all throughout the Bible, it talks about how, yeah, Earth's atmosphere, it's called heaven in the Bible. Next, you have the vacuum of outer space. It is also referred to as heaven in the Bible. And lastly, the waters above the firmament where you have the third heaven, which is what Paul's talking about, and that's where God's throne is. So this is where you get heavens in chapter 2, verse 1. But here in chapter 1, verse 1, it's heaven singular. This is all important. It'll all come together here in a moment. So next, verse 2. He says, The earth was without form. But wait a second. He created the heaven and the earth. Why is this significant? Job 38, verse 4, says this. This is God speaking to Job. And he's actually, Job finally has it out with God. And he's saying, why is all of this happening to me? And God responds back, verse 4, Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Anybody here ever uh, build a, anything, like whether it be like a, a tree stand or, or anything like that? You have to first start where? Yeah, you have to build a base. And is that just happening at random or is it formed? There's order to it. There's structure to it. He goes, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof? If thou knowest, or who hath stretched the line upon it? All of these words I have highlighted because, yes, every word matters, but I want to draw your attention to the ones that show you there is formation going on here. Nothing random. It is very structured. It is formed. It is very ordered. He continues. Verse 6, whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? Again, continuing with the theme, he's showing you, I formed all this stuff. It has form. The earth and its foundations had form. Oh, verse 7. We saw this verse two weeks ago when we started talking about the sons of God who left heaven, their first habitation, and started having sexual intercourse with the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6. So you guys see from the context of Job 34 verses 4, 5, and 6, he's talking about the beginning, right? He's talking about creation, the foundations of creation. You guys see that, right? And right here in verse 7, 
he lets you know that tied with the beginning of creation, we have these morning stars singing together and all the sons of God shouting for joy. Two weeks ago, if you weren't here, we talked about how morning stars, that is a term that is used to talk about angels. And the sons of God, that is also a term used for angelic beings. That seems like an awkward place to put verse 7. Because the sons of God and morning stars that we looked at were in Genesis 6, right before Noah's flood. Unless these morning stars and sons of God are from a different time. Going somewhere, going somewhere on your outline. The earth was without form. That's Genesis 1-2. But what we just read shows that God created the earth. When he did create the earth, it had form. Otherwise, what on earth do you do with the book of Job? Which, by the way, fun little side note, the book of Job is the oldest book in the entire Bible. Hmm. Next. We see that in Genesis 1-2, it says the earth was without form and void. Now, this next verse, you might want to circle a trillion times Isaiah 45-18, because this might just be, at least for me, it's my go-to verse to help explain this. And if there's one cross-reference when you're talking to your friends that you want to show this with them, you better have Isaiah 45-18 down. Here's what it says. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself, what's that next phrase? Well, wait a second. The earth was without form in Genesis 1, 2. Oh, wait. It says the word created. And he formed it when it was created, not made. So it had form when it was created. And he says, oh, just keep reading. God himself that formed the earth and made it. Do you see how created and made are used here in this verse? Created, you're you're creating something out of nothing. There was nothing there. He created it. Verse 1. And, which means in connection or continuing on. And he made it. Afterwards, when it was without form and void in verse 2. Oh, that's just the first half of the verse. Check out the rest of it. He hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. And I remember I showed this verse to somebody who was a scoffer at this, and he's like, yeah, he created it to be inhabited. That's Adam and Eve. I'm like, okay, sure it is. Sure it is. But what do you do with this one right here? You see that phrase there, not in vain? If you got your concordance out and looked at this verse here, you know what you'd find about that phrase, not in vain? It is the exact same word in the Hebrew that is used for without form and void in Genesis 1-2. Do you realize what that means? Genesis 1-2 says the earth is without form and void. Isaiah 45-18 says, hey... I didn't create the earth without form and void. I did not make it in vain. I did not create it without form and void. Something had to have happened to make 
the earth without form and void because God's telling us right here that that's not how he created it originally in verse 1. I think this is a good time of any to pause. Is there anybody still like just completely out of the woods? We're like, what on earth are we talking about? Or are you guys tracking along right now? Do we need to go back and look at any other verses? Andrew. If I may say, this is the easiest way that I've ever heard it explained. So please listen in on this. Trust me. It's the nicest thing he's ever said to me in my entire life. I don't give him credit. I've been through creation. This is is the easiest way to get it. So listen. So point two of your outline says, and void. But as we just saw, Isaiah 45, 18 says, God created the earth to be inhabited, not void. Telling you guys, if you are one to make note, you want to make note here that this phrase, not in vain, it's the exact same wording that's used in Genesis 1-2, where it says, without form and void. The key takeaway, God's telling you, I didn't create the earth without form and void. But it says that in Genesis 1-2. I know. Something had to have happened to screw things up. And then lastly, point three, or second to last, Darkness was upon the face of the deep. That's interesting. God is light in 1 John 1, 5, and in him is no darkness at all. That's the first memory verse we taught to Wyatt. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. And Revelation, those passages there talk about how one day God is going to, there's not going to be any need for sunlight. There's not going to be any need for stars because the glory of God is going to be so bright that we won't have any need for it. So why isn't that showing through here? Where did this darkness come from? Why is there darkness? Good question to ask. Seems like it contradicts with verse 1 especially with what we know about Christ himself. And lastly, point four. Is that the top of your next page? I'm feeling the heat now up here. Do we need to open the door? If you feel your neighbor starting to doze off, fall asleep because of the heat, smack them. Jaden, our resident smacker. All right, point four. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. I love this. I actually never saw this one before. But when you think about that, the Spirit of God moving upon the face of the waters. Check out some of these verses here. Psalm 104.30. Thou sendest forth thy spirits, they are created, and... So whenever the Spirit's on the scene, He creates. But there's an and there. And thou renewest the face of the what? Hmm. That's an interesting verse. So the Spirit here, the same Spirit that we're seeing in verse 2, moving upon the face of the deep, which again is an ominous ominous phrase throughout the Bible also. That same Spirit... Yeah, he creates, but he also renews. Renews the face of the earth. Uh, check out 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but... What's that word? By the who? Spirit. Spirit. It means to make alive, to bring alive again. Isn't that what happened to you? Weren't you dead 
in your sins, in utter darkness, out form, void. There was an emptiness inside of you. You were missing a third part of you that needed to be quickened and renewed. That a work that could only have been done by the Spirit. You don't have to hold your place here anymore, but turn over to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I love this. Never would I have thought to equate the most infamous passage in all of Scripture to this. Pay attention to the words that Christ uses here. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be what? Again. Born again. Renewed. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And we know the story of this. We've covered this before in how to say the Bible. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. A lot of people take this verse to say you must be baptized to be saved. There's a major church in this area that is their core doctrine, that your salvation is tied to being baptized. But as the context, as we just saw, that's not what it's talking about. The water baptism is what happened to each and every single one of you at the moment you were born. Your mother's water broke and you were completely baptized and born in water. All of us are born once in water. That's why we need to be born again of the spirit. Huh? Remind me again. What does Genesis 1-2 say? The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. That's interesting. The earth was completely baptized in what? It needed to be born again. It needed to be renewed. It needed to be quickened. You think? would use Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2 to paint a beautiful picture of what needs to happen to each and every single soul that is ever born onto this planet? Because I'm telling you, if what we're talking about tonight has no biblical validity, then you can't make that picture. You can't. Genesis 1, 1, and 2 cannot be a picture of salvation. I'll say this. An accurate and biblical depiction of salvation unless this is the case unless something happened that's why he says in verse 6 that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit marvel not that I said unto thee ye must be born again and then Titus what I guess I forgot Titus Titus chapter 3 go ahead and turn there Titus chapter 3. All the T's in your Bible are together. It's the last of the T's. And yeah, the last chapter. 
can do it. Titus chapter 3, look at verse 5. Talking about the kindness and love that God had toward us. Verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's not by our own good works, not by our own righteousness that we are saved. But according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of, what's that word? Generation? No, regeneration. That's another word for born again. The life, you have to be renewed. You have to be alive again, renewed, regenerated. The washing of regeneration and what's that word? Newing of the Holy Ghost? No, renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So what do all these passages have to do on your outline? Point four. All of these verses teach that when God sends His Spirit as it was moving upon the face of the waters, here's what it does. It renews. His Spirit quickens. His Spirit regenerates and allows a sinner to be born again. Do you think maybe that's what He was doing with the earth in verse 2? Based upon the way that the rest of the chapter goes, I would say so. And there's some other peculiar passages that are referencing this gap. This is a good one. Jeremiah 4.23. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. I feel like I've heard that before. And the heavens, and they had no light. Out of curiosity, does anybody know what's going on here in Jeremiah chapter 4? Give you a hint, it's not creation. But that's almost verbatim, Genesis 1 2. Yeah, God's using that verse to get a point across to somebody. He's using it to get a point across to the nation of Israel that this is happening to them as judgment for their sin. You read Jeremiah 4, everything he's talking about in there. He's saying that it's almost like they are without form and void and they have no light because of their rebellion against God. They're being judged for that sin. Interesting that he would use this verse to talk about judgment against sin. Hang on to that one. Another one, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. I mean, you can't read that and not go straight back to verse 2 of Genesis 1. Hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here Paul compares Genesis 1, 2 through 5 to being born again, to being saved. If nothing happened between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, then why would he make this comparison? Why? And that's why we looked at the verses we just did in point number four. So, the question on everyone's mind. Some of you probably have already filled in the gap. <laughs> oh, that was good. You know it. Whatever. <laughs> what happened in between verse one and verse two? Turn over to Ezekiel 28. We have spent countless times looking at these passages. Ezekiel 
Ezekiel 28. Look with me in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. Now, I covered him not too long ago, but can somebody help me refresh my memory? Uh, who is this king of Tyre that he's talking about? I think I only mentioned this like two weeks ago. Is he a real guy? Sure. He actually is, yeah. But as we're going to see here in a little bit, what is God really trying to say? Is he talking only specifically about this king of Tyre who was this enemy of Israel? Or is he trying to get people to see the evil behind the king of Tyre also? Yeah, keep that in mind. King of Tyre, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum. Goodness. Somebody help me out. What's a modern phrase that would be the equivalent of that? Back in my day, actually, it was outdated even in my day, but we'd say, oh, he's all that. Lame. What would it be? If somebody was like the complete package, if they, man, they had it all, what's the phrase for that now? Fake. What? That's clothing. Oh, what did you say? I said fake. Fake? That's not the word he's looking for. Come on. Do you guys know what I mean? Fire. Huh? Fire. Fire. Yeah. Fire. You know what? Yeah, literally, he's fire. <laughs> You'll see why in a second. All right. He sealed up the sum. He was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Verse 13. Thou hast been in where? The garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, emerald, the carbuncle, and gold. All of these weird instruments. He's saying, it's a part of you. These gems, these stones, they are a part of the king of Tyre. But then he says, the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes. These are musical instruments. I don't know of any man that was ever born on this earth who had musical instruments coming out of his body, who radiated all of these various different colors of gems and stones. He's talking about somebody else here. Thou art, verse 14, ah, the anointed, what? Sure. That covereth. And I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God question for you. Are we in heaven or are we on the earth? Or maybe heaven and the earth since there was no firmament were together. Verse 14, uh, the Holy Mount of God, thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Verse 15, thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart, verse 17, was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy... There's that word traffic. Hmm. Therefore will I bring forth the fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. So whoever this anointed cherub was... Obviously, by the brightness, meaning that the Shekinah glory, the radiating bright light, because remember, 
God is light. He is it. He's the embodiment thereof. And in him is no darkness at all. As this light was radiating from God to this person, it put on this great light show. And I wonder, with the musical instruments that were in him, if who's the audience? Maybe the morning stars and the sons of God who sang with joy back in Job 38, verse 7. Whoever this guy is, as you compare Scripture with Scripture and spiritual things with spiritual things to know the Bible, he's obviously leading worship in Eden on the Mount of God for the angelic beings. Isaiah 14. That means turn there, sorry. Isaiah chapter 14. If you haven't already, you want to mark it down or make notes somewhere, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. You need these two passages to understand what's going on here. They're the only two passages that give this amount of specific details as to what happened to this anointed cherub. Isaiah 14. Look with me in Let's look at verse 12. How art thou fallen from where? Heaven, Heaven singular. O Lucifer, son of the morning. How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, the angelic hosts. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down. The second time he mentions that to the sides of the pit. Here we have in these two passages here, the anointed cherub, the son of Tyre, and also Lucifer. It's the same thing. These two passages, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, make up the fall of Lucifer and his rebellion against God. Remember the passage in Jeremiah chapter 4? I beheld the earth and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. What was the context of Jeremiah 4? Israel's rebellion against God and the judgment that came upon it. What caused the earth to be without form and void and darkness to be upon the face of the deep? Another rebellion against God and the judgment that came from it. How do we know that? Let's jump over to the New Testament to see if the New Testament has anything to say about it. 2 Peter chapter 3. As I see you all fanning with papers, there is a temptation in me to talk about the expediency for which uh, a hypothetical message may or may not uh, finish in a certain amount of time, but I'm not going to say that mm -hmm. so that I don't get smacked per an agreement that Jaden and I have with each other. So I'm not going to say it. There were also many witnesses. <laughs> yes, there were. Two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Yeah, hypothetical situation with a hypothetical speaker who may or may not be myself. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3. 
Oh, this is a great passage. Another one that you want to make sure that you mark down. 2 Peter 3, 3. Look with me in verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days. Those are days we're in as you study the Bible. Scoffers walking after their own lusts. You guys know what a scoffer is? Somebody who makes fun of you. Someone who's like, that's not happening. Oh, you believe that? You believe these crazy stories? Number one, you believe, yeah, uh, my Savior rose again from the grave. That's an unbelievable and unrealistic thing, but it happened. And most of Christianity would agree with that. They wouldn't come out that harshly against that. So if that's not so far-fetched, why would this be? Last days, many scoffers walking after their own lust. And saying, who's saying? Who's talking here? The scoffers are. Here's what they're saying, verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the what? Now, this is what scoffers are saying. Keep that down. In other words, nothing's changed since Genesis 1.1. Everything just goes as it's always been, and that's how everything's going to be. God's not coming back. That's what they say. Now, Peter goes back in verse 5, and he starts talking. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Now, question for you, just based upon that verse alone. Is this talking about Genesis chapter 1 with the firmament, or is this talking about Genesis chapter 8 with Noah? The earth standing in the water, but out of the water. Remember when God started creating the firmament, how the land came up from the waters? Remember that? As you study out creation? Yeah. Because this definitely didn't happen in Noah's flood. You guys see that? Okay. That's good, because keep reading. Whereby, verse 6, the world that then was being overflowed with what? perished got news for you guys the world of Noah's day didn't perish the same world system that operated in Noah's time is still happening right now that world system that's why he uses the word world there and not earth the world of Noah's flood did not perish but according to this verse, there was a, a world that did perish. Verse 7, But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. That's where the water came from. As judgment for sin of Lucifer's rebellion, God wiped out everything. All of those who followed him wiped out any creation that was here at that time, <coughs> wiped it all out. Got a great, great big deluge. That means flood. You guys see how this is not talking about Noah's flood, right? And that's why, as, you, as I had mentioned a few weeks back, this is another possibility 
as to where devils and spirits come from. Genesis chapter 6, what we covered the past two weeks about the disembodied spirits of the giants being that, that's one possibility. This is another possibility of where devils and evil spirits come from. Other than that, the Bible's not 100% one way or the other. It's definitely one of these two, I'm for sure of that. But it's just one possibility. So, if there's no gap of time here, questions need to arise. And these are questions you need to ask any scoffers on this. If this is not true, what on earth do you do with these three passages we just read? Where do you put Lucifer's fall? Where do you put Lucifer's rebellion? There's no other place, biblically speaking, in Scripture where it fits. Oh, Genesis 6, when the other sons of God left. Um, the devil was a murderer from the beginning, and the first murder took place in Genesis chapter 4, which predates Genesis chapter 6, so that can't be it. Oh, okay, Genesis chapter 3 then. Uh, no, because in Genesis chapter 3, he was already the subtle serpent, and he was not an anointed cherub then, covering the throne of God. So it has to be before Genesis chapter 3. Don't see any mention of him in chapter 2. Don't see anything that talks about any of this stuff in Genesis chapter 2. The only logical conclusion is that Lucifer's fall and rebellion and this great flood as judgment for that happened in between verse 1 and verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1. Yep. That's why I erased this. Just letting the Bible explain itself to us. Therefore, to wrap up this point, Genesis 1.28 and the word replenish is a commission to Adam. A commission. You and I as Christians have a great commission. You know what it is? Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. The Son of God, that's what Adam is called in Luke 3.38. You can check that out. It's a commission to Adam, the Son of God, and his bride to multiply and to bear fruit in the image of God and to fill the universe with sons of God for a second time. That's why the word made is used for everything else after verse 3. And as if everything we looked at already isn't enough, do you guys remember the second time God had to say that phrase? It's Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. After a flood, God looked at Noah and said, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Because a flood just happened and took out all of creation. As I mentioned before, the word replenish, that means to fill again. You don't go out to a restaurant and the waiter or waitress comes up to you and says, okay, what can I get you guys for refills? No, she asks you if you want a refill after it was already filled the first time. Therefore, Genesis, I already read that. I'm sorry. Uh, but if you want more notes on it, the word replenish actually means to recover former fullness. And again, Genesis 9, 1 verse. All right. So, question two. So, dinosaurs. 
All right. Is that how it's phrased? No, that was me. Well, because the question was, does 128 have to do with three, have to do with dinosaurs? And we didn't really cover that in question one, so that's why I made it a part two. So dinosaurs. All right. Our knowledge of dinosaurs, which means terrible lizard, has only come to existence in the last 200 years. Follow along with this. We're not going to spend too much time on it. In 1824, the Reverend William Buckland of England, that does not count, Jane, you can't hit me. William Buckland of England found several large bones and called his find Megalosaurus, meaning great lizard. I don't know about you guys, but this just dawned on me. Do you realize all the knowledge we have of dinosaurs only goes back 200 years? Isn't that weird? Point two, this is the first known discovery of dinosaur bones in history, and those in the British Empire had no idea what this could be. However, Buckland believed that these creatures must have lived in the gap of time between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. I love that. The very first guy who was known for discovering dinosaur bones, he attributed it as, ah, these guys had to be here in between those two verses. And he was a pastor. Now, there are several potential descriptions for dinosaurs in the Bible. Number one, behemoth. You can check those passages out later. Leviathan and dragons. All three of those words are found in there, but you guys look at that. Who is that really describing here? So point four, these biblical creatures that seem like dinosaurs are always associated with the devil and his ways. Did Job and others actually see these creatures? Or... Did God just compare their evil ways? Now that's where like, you get into this whole kind of debacle of, man, did Noah have dinosaurs on the ark? Well, I mean, if you look at it, there are dinosaurs that have different sizes that could have been on there. But then again, no. Actually, I wouldn't say so. I would say they weren't on there. I mean, if you look at lizards and other reptilian families, like a Komodo dragon, things like that, Maybe, but Job predates that. I, I tend to lean on the side of they weren't around during Job's day, but man, Job being the oldest book of the Bible, he probably had knowledge of it. And keep in mind, everybody back in Job's day lived into their 900s. Imagine how much knowledge you would amass if you were 900 years old. Now, so. <laughs> Jamie said that, not me. Imagine... As a side note, imagine the things you would discover and invent and build if you lived to be that old. Is it any far stretch of the imagination to think that right at Noah's flood that they had metropolitan cities with skyscrapers and everything? Study out a couple of the names that end up at the bottom of Genesis chapter 4, like Tubal Cain. You'll see that these guys were like the inventors of every artifice of instruments or tools, metals. That was in Genesis 4. Holy smokes, what were they able to do? So, what happened to the dinosaurs? Well, unfortunately, the Bible is not, or does not say what happened to them, and science doesn't give a conclusive answer either. However... The passage that seems to indicate what happens, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, about a world that then was, that was completely engulfed in water. Uh, question, anybody get into nature shows and like watch people go deep sea diving or whatever and you come up with like those angler fishes, you know, like on Nemo? The, <laughs> those creepy things that are in there. Number one, do you guys realize 
that there are things in the ocean floor that we haven't even discovered yet. Yep. Not to mention, what happens the farther deep deep down you go? Mer people. What? <laughs> Darker it gets because it's further away from light, and since it's farther away from light, what's the temperature like? Cold. Imagine this entire world completely engulfed in water, and the farther down it goes. Oh, and by the way, Job 33, I think it says, says that the deep, which is also talking what it says in Genesis 1, 2, the deep is frozen. You know why people always give us grief that we purport the gap? Because they say that we are giving credence to evolutionary science, credence to theistic evolution. That's not at all what we're saying. Uh, hello, if anything, the gap shows you what happened with Lucifer, and not to mention the fact that he had the exact same commission that was then given to Adam, and Adam had the exact same commission that was given to Noah, and Noah had the exact same commission that was given to the disciples, and now that very same important commission that has been handed down since eternity past lands right in your lap right now. In the last minutes of the church age before God, once again, covers this earth and baptizes this earth only not with water, but with what? That same commission is yours. Anybody want to take a stab in the dark as to what the commission will be in eternity future? That's the point of the gap. And that's why if there is a devotional application to this great deep doctrinal truth, it's that. You and I are in a long lineage of God wanting to express his will and what he desires for you and I to do. Because Lucifer failed, Adam failed, Noah failed, every single dispensation, every single steward of a dispensation failed. Yes, the church as a whole will fail. That's why we're going to get raptured out of here. But individually, you don't have to be a failure. You can succeed in your mission to be fruitful and to multiply and to make disciples on this planet. But I digress for a good reason. All that to say, what people lobby against us as, as far as what we accuse, it's because of this right here. Is it too far-fetched to think that maybe there actually was an ice age? How else do you explain the fossils? When they're frozen in the earth because that much water is on top of the globe, whatever beasts were here during then probably got fossilized from that. Andy, yeah? I was going to say on the fossils, as of today, there's over 300 between the United States, Western, and Eastern Hemisphere um, that they've discovered. It's not just over there, it's here in the States as well. Mm-hmm. That's weird. And, and that is it, because if you said it goes back 100 feet, 200 years. Yeah. And no matter where you stand on the dinosaurs, Pastor Jay always said, focus on the gospel. Yeah. And hey, it's still six literal days of creation, by the way. Don't let anybody try to accuse us of that or accuse you of that if you start spewing that around. We're just saying there was a gap in between verse 1 and verse 2. So, bullet point. Considering that these monstrous creature bones have only surfaced during the Laodicean time church period or time period of church history, is certainly a warning to the entire world that judgment is coming. Do you see a pattern here? The answer to question one was judgment's coming. 
the question or the answer to question two is judgment's coming. Question three. This was asked by Isabella. Why does every Bible translation say in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Thank you for that because I previously did not realize that until you asked. You guys realize that with the exception of a few, like if you go, to, I went to Bible Gateway today and they had a couple Bibles that predate the King James Bible, which again, that's another question. But anyways, this predated the King James Bible. The ones that are kind of a little bit more newer and modern, they're not really Bible versions that are prevalent on the market. Outside of that, every single Bible version says in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yours is the only one that says heaven. So we kind of already covered the reason as to why it's heaven singular, because the three heavens didn't exist yet in Genesis 1.1. Heaven and earth were one. But this is where you got to pull the curtain back and look. Why is it that Bible versions say heavens instead of heaven? Very simply put, you guys are still in 2 Peter 3. Look at verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days, what? Scoffers. People doubting. People causing division. People saying, oh, you believe that's the case? Well, my Bible doesn't say that. So what do you have to say about that? And then lastly, Genesis 3.1. This all goes back to that serpent. It all goes back to that anointed cherub. The very first words he speaks in the Bible. Yea, hath God. What? He's always been attacking God's word. He has always been attacking what God's word actually says. So here's the thing. And here's the answer to that question. If it is to read heavens, it forces a connection to everything that happened when God recreated the earth. Having verse 1 say heavens connects that there's no gap of time between verse 1 and verse 2. It's showing you, oh, the heavens were already there, which means that, oh, in verse 1, well, everything that happened in the rest of chapter 1 happened right then and there. If you change the words... If you change one stinking letter, it changes the meaning of the entire passage. That's why Proverbs 30, verse 5, and this isn't really a Bible version issue. It's a word issue. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, every word of God is pure. Every word, every letter. People always say, well, you know, if we get the general gist of it, if we get the general principles or concepts or the ideals, then they're all to say the same thing. This just proves if you change one letter, the meaning, the principles, the concepts, the ideals, they all change with it. Every word is pure. That's why, that's one of the reasons, just one reason as to why we hold fast to say that this is God's preserved word. We have a final authority that we believe for every word of truth and doctrine and practice. We believe it's infallible without error because of all of the evidence we just looked at tonight. Amen? It's not too bad tonight. Kind of. Any questions on that? That was a lot and that was deep. And you guys are probably in a percentile of 1% of people that actually know what that means. So yay for that. Now, what are you going to do with it? Yeah, Megan. 
I was just going to say, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the gap was taught as truth all throughout history up until more recently, like in the late yeah. church period is when it started getting dropped. Yeah. Well, that guy in question number two, William Buckland, 1824. You guys realize that the King James Bible is still the prevalent, dominant Bible version there. The next, the next big kahuna wouldn't come out till 1881. That, that's what he believed. Yeah, Andy. And it's important, too, because I, I asked this question in JBI. You don't have to know the gap to be saved. No, not at all. The gap in discipleship, that's something that somebody who actually wants to bring it up, if they've noticed those things, or when someone's more readily established in their walk. Yeah. So you don't need to take these things and just throw it on someone's throat because they're not going to get it. What it does is it takes this and makes it deeper. Because, again, it just goes to show you that what God commanded his disciples to do in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, didn't just start 2,000 years ago. This has been going on since eternity passed, and he wants you to be a part of it. That's deep. James. So, going back, like I said, like the fact that it was always preached until recently, and you just look at what God's always done and always confounded the Word of God, or what Satan's always done is always confounded the Word of God. If he can hide his true story, if he can hide who he really is from oh, yeah. you by erasing his history, then he can deceive you that much more to thinking that he's not a threat to your life. Yep. So erasing the gap erases his his testimony of being a rebellious deceiver. <laughs> yeah. And again, you get anybody that asks, that's like, oh, that's stupid. I've never heard that before. You're pulling straws. Just tell them. All right, where do you put Lucifer's fallen rebellion? Take him Ezekiel 28. Take him Isaiah 14. Ask him, where does this fall? Where chronologically does this fall? Won't be able to answer him. All right, let's pray. Father.